Our first reading comes from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 13 to 19. Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oath in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Messiah. Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and the stipulations and degrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised you on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. Now, second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourselves down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and he will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bert. Friends, if, uh, if you were here last week, you will know that uh, we looked then at the first of these three temptations in Matthew chapter 4. And if you weren't here, you can, uh, you can find it on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, it won't be on our website yet until Andrew gets back from holidays. However, today we're going to move on to the second of these temptations. But I was thinking that as we're looking at this passage, we could, we could possibly conclude that what we have here were actually the only temptations that Jesus ever faced. We could be mis- uh, led to think that these are like three token episodes that show us that Jesus experienced some enticement to sin in an otherwise easygoing life. But that would be incorrect. 
I mean, to begin with, both Mark and Luke make it clear that Jesus was actually tempted by the devil for the entire 40 days and nights that he spent in the wilderness. He was tested in many other ways, even before these three occasions <coughs> excuse me, that are described in our text. <coughs> excuse me. Furthermore, at the end of Luke's account, Luke says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The fact that Jesus resisted did not mean that the devil gave up, but rather he continued to attack Jesus throughout his earthly life. We can also think of that passage in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had just explained to his disciples for the very first time that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But do you remember what happened next? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. But Peter didn't realise that he was actually urging Jesus to give in to his greatest of all temptations, to avoid the unspeakable suffering that lay ahead of him. And so how did Jesus respond? He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And friends, how could we forget what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Matthew chapter 26 says that Jesus was sorrowful and troubled. He declared, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We're told that he prayed three times, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me. And he said to his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Luke adds that he was also in anguish and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. As Jesus faced the horror of the cross, he was severely tempted to abort his whole mission to put his own well-being first, to deviate from his Father's will. And so let's never think that what we have in our text is the, is the full extent of Jesus' enticement to, to disobey. But rather what we have here is a more detailed description of just three of the many tests that he faced throughout his entire life. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 4 it says, that Jesus is the one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Be assured he was tested severely and fully and consistently, and all the more so because the devil was so highly motivated to bring him down. For to do so would bring God's entire plan of salvation to an end. But that brings us then to this second temptation as we find it in Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7. Now, I should mention that for no obvious reason, Luke swaps around the second and third temptations in his gospel. So for him, this is number three. 
But regardless of the order, what we need to consider is what we can learn from this episode today. It starts by saying, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So why did the devil take Jesus from the wilderness and bring him here? Well, partly because this was the highest place in all Israel. It was the most vulnerable and, in fact, dangerous spot to be perched. It was also the most significant place in all Israel, for it was in Jerusalem, God's holy city, and it was at the temple, God's holy dwelling place among his people. And furthermore, it was also the busiest place in all Israel. There would have been throngs of worshippers in the temple courts. There would have been people buying and selling in the marketplaces. There would have been children playing in the streets. But then in verse 6, the devil places his temptation before Jesus. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. To throw yourself from this highest point of the temple would bring certain and dramatic death. So was he tempting Jesus to commit suicide? No, he wasn't. For the devil goes on to quote scripture, taking his words from Psalm 91. He says, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so the devil was tempting Jesus to throw himself down so that his heavenly father could fulfill this biblical promise, sending his angels to rescue him from a horrible death. And if there were ever a place where God should be ready to do that, then surely it was right here at his own holy temple in the midst of his own holy city. Now we of course know that the words of Psalm 91 are true. They are, after all, the infallible Word of God. And we see them fulfilled many times in Scripture. Take, for example, that angel who protected the three men in the fiery furnace, or the angel who protected Daniel in the lion's den. But on top of that, I'm sure that many of us have experienced this truth in our own lives. Times when we've been inexplicably delivered from trouble or danger, and we just know that it was the Lord and his angels who miraculously stepped in. But Jesus was no exception to this. Do you remember how a little earlier in chapter 2 it was an angel who warned Joseph to escape to Egypt so that Jesus' life would be spared? And at the end of our text that we read this morning, doesn't it say there that when the devil left, angels came and attended him? And what about when he was arrested in Matthew chapter 26? Jesus told a sword-swinging Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus most definitely could jump from the very top of the temple, knowing that his Father and his angels could save him. And if he did so... Wouldn't that have been a great boost to his upcoming ministry? Just imagine how impressed the crowds would have been by this dramatic event. 
Just imagine how much more easily Jesus could attract a following if they witnessed this death-defying stunt. But then we may well ask ourselves, well, why then was this such a temptation? What sin would Jesus have committed if he had taken up the devil's suggestion? Wouldn't it have been a good thing rather than a bad thing? So what's actually the problem here? Well, Jesus reveals the true nature of his temptation in his own reply. For again, quoting scripture, it says, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, the words of Psalm 91 are absolutely true but yet the devil was twisting them to suit his agenda. For while it says that the Lord will command his angels to protect us, it never says that we should intentionally set up a situation in order to assess whether that is true. The real temptation for Jesus was to test his father's love. And surely we could understand why this was so enticing for him. I mean, back in chapter 3, his father had spoken from heaven, declaring, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But then immediately Jesus was led into the wilderness. And he spent 40 long days and 40 long nights in this desolate and dangerous place. In Mark's account, he tells us that Jesus was there amongst the wild animals adding further to the distress. We already know from last week that he had been fasting for that entire time and he was incredibly hungry. And we know that all the while he was being harassed by the devil himself. And so surely there came a time when he wanted to question his father's word. Did he really love him? Was he truly pleased? It didn't feel like it right now. But here was an opportunity for him to be reassured. Perhaps if I throw myself down from this temple and the angels would come and lift me up in their hands, then I would know for certain that my father has not deserted me and that he cares about me still. Jesus was severely tempted to think, if God really loves me, then surely he'll prove it by saving me in this way. That was the true nature of his temptation, to doubt his father's word and put his love to the test. But friends, isn't this a common temptation to all of humanity, including you and me? Last week, we remembered Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and God told them there that they were free to eat from any tree in the garden. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God loved them and he cared for them and he provided for all of their needs. But there was one tree he told them not to eat from. For if they did, they would certainly die. But then the devil came along, didn't he? Saying, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so they were lured by him into thinking, if God really loves us, 
then surely He'd let us eat from this beautiful tree. Surely He wants us to be like Him, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve were seduced into doubting God's Word and testing God's love. And they quickly gave in and plunged not only themselves, but all of humanity into sin. Or what about the nation of Israel? God had chosen them and he had promised that he would bless them. He had amazingly delivered them from Egyptian slavery, astonishingly led them through the Red Sea on dry ground, miraculously fed them with manna and quail. But how would they respond to all this blessing? Well, Jesus actually reminds us in his own reply to the devil, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, For in Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And do you know what happened at Massa? Well, it's back in Exodus 17. After all the incredible things that they had experienced, the Israelites reached a place where there was no water to drink. And immediately they started complaining and grumbling and arguing. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the Lord, the Lord still graciously responded, telling Moses to strike a rock with his staff and miraculously providing water for them to drink. But yet the Lord was angry. And in Exodus 17 verse 7 it says Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They were a lot like Adam and Eve thinking if the Lord really loved them then surely he'd give them water right then and then there. They were tempted to doubt God's word and to put his love to the test. And so they too succumbed to temptation and their sin multiplied. But what about us sitting here today in 2023? Are we enticed in this same way? Can we be tempted to test the Lord our God? Well, yes, we certainly can. We're tempted to test him whenever we start a sentence with the words, if God really loves me, then surely, and you fill in the blank. And to be honest, I hear it a lot. If God really loves me, then surely he should give me a baby or another baby and a healthy one at that. If God really loves me, then surely he would provide me with a job or a better job or the job of my dreams. If God really loves me, then surely he should make me more confident and capable and popular. If God really loves me, then surely he should just leave me in peace, not put all those expectations on me so I can just keep living my self-indulgent life. If God really loves me, then surely he'd want me to gain a better life, 
by devoting all my time to my own success and wealth and never having to give anything back to him. If God really loves me, then surely he wouldn't want me to stay in this difficult marriage. And surely he wouldn't have put this other man or this other woman on my path if he doesn't want me to be happy. If God really loves me, then surely he would protect my family from every illness and from every tragedy. Or surely he would make my loved one well again. And surely he wouldn't ever let them die. If God really loves me, then surely he will provide me with a husband or a wife. If God really loves me, then surely he wouldn't ever expect me to get out of my comfort zone to serve him or to be his witness. If God really loves me, then surely he will save my unbelieving spouse or child or parent or friend. If God really loves me, then surely he should stop my suffering now and take me to my eternal home. If God really loves me, then surely he should let me do whatever I want, whatever makes me feel good. If God really loves me, then surely he should protect me from every sadness, every frustration, every hardship of life. If God really loves me, then surely he should do exactly what I want, when I want, and how I want. Now, don't get me wrong, no one is suggesting that we shouldn't pray for healing or for a job or for the salvation of a loved one. But the point is that we should never set these things up as a way to evaluate whether the Lord is living up to our expectations and whether he is worthy of our devotion. For whenever we speak or think or act in this way, we're actually testing him. And you may be shocked to realise just how grave and how serious that really is. But what we're really doing is we're doubting the truth of God's word. For the Lord has told us clearly that he loves us deeply and cares for us constantly. He's told us that he will save every person who puts their hope in Jesus and that if he didn't spare his own son, but, but gave him up for us all, then won't he also graciously give us all things? He's told us that everything in this world and everything in our lives is under his complete control. He's told us that he is wise and he is a compassionate father and his ways are far higher than ours. He has told us that in all things he is working for the good of those who are his and that nothing in all of creation can separate us from his love. Those are his promises and his promises are trustworthy and true. But if we spend our days doubting them and questioning them and undermining them, if we spend our days putting conditions on his love and expecting him to prove it to us according to our own selfish standards, well then what we're doing is we're putting God on trial. But my friends, the fact of the matter is that we all do it. 
We're so quickly tempted to doubt God and to put his love to the test. And we so quickly give in to that temptation and we fall into sin. And no matter how hard we might try, we'll never stop doing it. Because just like Adam and Eve, and just like the people of Israel, we're so weak. And we cannot resist the devil's schemes. But isn't that exactly why we should be so grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ? For he was tempted just as we are. He went through such an incredibly difficult time and he must have wondered how he could even go on. And so he was sorely tempted to doubt his father's word and to put his love to the test, sorely tempted to listen to the devil and throw himself down from that temple roof, sorely tempted to demand evidence that his father's promises were in fact true. But yet he never did. He didn't give in. He didn't fail. He didn't sin. Unlike you and me, he resisted temptation and stood firm to the end, completely trusting his father's word and never putting him to the test. And because of that, Because of that, my friends, he is able to save us from the condemnation that we deserve for all of our dismal failures. Because of that, we can be pardoned for all those times when we have selfishly tested God. Because of that, we can find forgiveness for all those times when we doubted his love. For my friends, when God looks down upon us, He no longer sees us in our guilt and our shame, but he sees us clothed in the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, I I just love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism describes this in Lord's Day 23. It asks, how are you right with God? And just listen to this answer. It says, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Ah, friends, isn't this just the most wonderful news that Jesus came to take our place to resist the temptations that we constantly give in to, to live the righteous life that we never could achieve, to pay the penalty that we deserved and to make us completely right with our God. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you accepted this glorious gift of God with a believing heart? If you haven't, well, then I implore you 
to do so today. For Jesus, he is the only one who can save you. He is the only one who never failed, who can rescue you from the devil's snare and who can present you faultless before your God. And if we trust in him, then he will also help us to stop testing the Lord, to stop doubting his promises and questioning his care. He will help us to find peace. He will help us to find comfort in every circumstance of life, even when times are so tough and we think it's all too much to bear. And my friends, he will grow within us a confidence and a hope that in all things he is truly working for our good and that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Ah, oh, that every one of us would experience this heartfelt assurance in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Father in heaven, we are just amazed at how Jesus came and faced such enormous temptation for his whole life, but yet never failed, never gave in, and never sinned. Father, we're amazed because we know how quickly we fail every single day of our life. And so, Lord, we pray, please forgive us for the many times that we have failed to trust your word and to trust in your promises, for the many times that we put your love to the test. Lord, please help us in the depths of our despair to run to Jesus and to cling to him as our only hope. Lord, help us to know that by faith we are credited with his perfect righteousness and his perfect holiness as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Lord God Almighty, please help us to believe this. Please help us to rejoice in this. And please help us to respond to this by loving you with all our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.